beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we find in the book of Job that Job asks a particular question about how can a sinful man be righteous in the sight of a holy God. It's a question that deals with all of us, isn't it? How is it that I can come into the presence of a holy God when I know that I have violated all of the commandments of God? That sin still clings to even the best works of the saints in this life. How is it that I can come before a holy God and worship Him and be accepted by Him? Uh, what is the means by which I can come before Him? How is it that I can be covered with the righteous robes of Christ and then enter in to that glory before the Heavenly Father? Scripture speaks often about this and we need to understand this. We need to understand there is only one way to enter in before the presence of the Father, and His name is Jesus. He is the eternal life. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. He is the one who is the only mediator between God and men. He is the man Christ Jesus. We know that there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus. He is the only means by which an unholy individual can stand in the presence of a holy God. Because He is the Advocate. The Apostle Paul deals with mankind in general in Romans chapter 3. He says there is none righteous, no not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good, no, not even one. That's the condition in which we come into this world. Well then how will I be able to deal with my Maker? How will I be able to stand before this holy God when I come with inborn and actual sin? I come as a God-hater. I come as one desiring and striving to do my own will. I come even as those we will not have this man to rule over us. That's our nature, beloved. You know, at different times of the day, we exhibit that. We demonstrate that. We read of it and we say, when we see these people crying out, we will not have this man to rule over us, crucify him. We see this in our lives as well. The moment we go and do our own thing, even though we know what the Lord says, yeah, but I think we are saying at that point, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's the sin that so easily clings to us, even as believers. So, Paul deals with that in the book of Romans. He deals with the grace of God. He deals with the person of Christ who comes to redeem. And he comes and he tells us about the imputation about our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us by which we are accepted before a holy God. So John is writing about this advocate. We need to understand this advocate. We need to understand the work of of the advocate. We need to understand that he is the advocate. There is none other. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. There is no other. There is no other way to be cleansed. There is no other way to be covered. It's amazing how the church misses that today. And there's types and shadows and figures all throughout the old covenant. The sacrifices demonstrate that we need a covering. That's what the ceremonial aspect of the law did. All the animal sacrifices teach us, I need a covering. 
I'm not righteous in the sight of God. I need a propitiation. I need an atoning sacrifice. I need a covering. You find that right from the beginning, don't we? Genesis 3. It's exactly what the Lord does. He clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins. For my money, those are lamb skins. They reflect the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve clothe themselves in fig leaves. God takes them off. This will not do. This will not satisfy. Beloved, you can only be clothed with God's covering. There is no other way to come into His presence. And yet that's what man has been doing since the fall, is trying to cover himself and thinking this is good enough in the sight of God. There must be a blood sacrifice that is brought to the Lord. And yet Cain says the fruit of the produce of the ground. There's nothing sinful about the fruit of the produce, but it's not the offering that God said to bring. And people will say, well, the important thing is not to sacrifice. He didn't come by faith. Well, he didn't come by faith, and because he didn't come by faith, he didn't bring the right sacrifice. Because by faith, we believe the promise of God. We desire to obey the teaching of God's Word. We desire to obey God. And we come with what He requires. So it is. We find throughout all of the Old Testament types, shadows, symbols, ceremonies, sacrifices that teach us we need a covering. Think about uh, John chapter 3 and thinking of this particular text of the, the bronze serpent. And as you know, Lord willing, we'll see that tomorrow, but the bronze serpent being lifted up. And the Lord said to those that were bitten by snake, tell the people, he told Moses, tell the people to look to the bronze serpent and they would be healed from their snake bites. People wouldn't look. Why? Because of rationalism. Because of rebellion in the heart. Because God said this and this seems so foolish. How can this bronze serpent heal me? I'm not going to look. I'll go some other way. I'll put on my fig leaves and that ought to be good enough. And Paul says that 23,000 fell in the wilderness. Stubborn, rebellious, God-hating in the heart, going their own way in their own thing. And they died from the snake bite. John uses the same imagery to speak about Christ being lifted up. That all who believe in Him will not perish. You get the point? Here they are in the wilderness and there is only one means to be healed. And that is the instrument that God has given. And if you look, this is an act of faith. If you look, you will be healed. If you do not, you die. John uses that as a parallel of Christ. There is only one means by which you can be healed of your sin. The poison of sin within the soul. And His name is Jesus. And if you look to Him, you will be healed. If you do not, you will die in your sins. Let me ask some of you this morning. Who are you looking to? Who are you looking at? 
What are you trusting in? What is your faith and your confidence in before the living God? Is it you? Is it your church membership? Is it things that you do in the community? Is it you? I'm a good person, you say. Certainly God would accept me. I've never done this, that, or the other thing. I'm not in prison. I'm not a murderer. I haven't committed those things. Is that your attitude before the living God? Is that what you're trusting? Is that the fig leaves that you have put on? Or are you looking to the only Savior? And notice, the only Savior. John, in bringing encouragement to the people of God, looking at our text here, he wants to bring encouragement to God's people. Don't we need encouragement? We are people that are in constant need of encouragement. We're not very good at giving it, but we certainly want it. We need it. We need to be encouraged. We need the truth of God's Word to encourage the soul, to strengthen our soul. Beloved, you can encourage yourself and you do so by going back to the promises of God and rehearsing them in your life. And you can encourage others by bringing those truths and those promises to the people who are struggling, who are going through difficulties. You know, we ought to, beloved, we ought to encourage before we get to that point where we become so discouraged. We ought to be slinging encouragement back and forth to one another continually in our Christian life. This would be a guard, this would be a strengthening of the soul in preparation of what the catechism lesson said. The world and the flesh and the devil assailing us without ceasing forearmed, prepared to do battle in this world in which we live. John brings the encouragement to the people of God. You remember as he uh, finishes up, and again, remember this, that there were no chapter and verses in the original writings, but uh, they have been broken up for trying to bring convenience of reading. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. But in chapter 1, we read in verses 8 through 10, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and this truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Notice what John is saying there. We sin. You recognize that as a believer? Do you sin? You recognize that you sin daily, thought, word, and deed? You know, as you mature as a Christian, you may not be doing certain things that you did when you were younger in the faith, but you're thinking them. And you realize that the battlefield is your mind, isn't it? That's where you're struggling. You might not even say these things, but you're thinking them. This is where the battle takes place with the Christians that are mature. Christian, that John speaks about the, the three levels, as it were, of believers. The, the young men, the, the older fathers, and the strong ones too. Little children, younger men, and older fathers. And that's basically the life of the church. You have the infants, you have the more mature. The less mature, the more mature. And there is the constant battlefield that goes on. You think about these things. You think about the fight, the struggle. You think about so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that. And it rolls around in your mind. 
And then assuming, you have assumptions. You know, you got assumption police all over the place. They're assuming this and assuming that. You don't know, but you just assume it. And that's a sin. And you end up opening your mouth and saying things that you don't know for a fact that's true. And then you gossip. And you slander. You may not be hurting somebody physically, but you're damaging somebody spiritually. That goes on in the life of the church. We sin. We fall short every day. What do we do? You get paralyzed, can't you? To think that you're not forgiven. John is speaking to believers here. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's not saying if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not talking about the unbeliever. He's talking about the believer. Now, the union can never be broken, but the fellowship certainly can be disrupted. Sin does that, doesn't it? It does that in the life of the church. Our unity in Christ can never be broken for true believers. But certainly the fellowship can be disrupted because of sin. So it is with the Lord. Notice when you sin. I didn't say if you sin. I said when you sin. Notice when you sin, you don't pray. Notice when you sin, you absent yourself from the word of God. Notice when you sin, you don't like the fellowship of the saints. Notice that when you sin, that you're not one who is faithful on the Lord's day. You begin absenting yourself from worship. Notice how that works in the Christian life. You don't think that that's possible? Look at what David did. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Look at how he was a miserable man. A sick, miserable man. He didn't want the fellowship of the saints. This, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go unto the house of the Lord. That was certainly not David's declaration at that time in Psalm 32. Sin brings us low. Sin can disrupt all kinds of things in the life of the church. So we come and we confess and we confess them to the Lord. And he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. And so John is bringing encouragement in this way. He says, little children, little children, what a term of endearment. This is how we are viewed in the sight of God as little children, technon. That is a little child. He's not using the term brephos as a nursing infant. He uses the Greek term which refers to a little child. We're viewed in that way before God. And John is viewing the people of God in this way. It's little children. He says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He is writing the truth to us to cause us to avoid sin, to be convicted by sin, to be one who is turning away from sin. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to thy word. It's planting the word of God in the heart. Uh, Let me ask you, are you in a habit of planting God's word into your heart? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Parents, are you teaching your children how to plant the word of God in their heart? Well, if you're not doing it yourself, how are you going to teach your kids? And then the ignorance just goes on another generation. 
well, my parents didn't teach me, and so I'm basically doing what my parents did in my life, and I'm not doing that for my kid. And it goes on and on and on in the ignorance, and the church isn't built up in the knowledge of the truth. It isn't growing in maturity. It's becoming more and more infantile. That we don't even know the basic elementary things of the things of Christ. That is not a virtue, beloved. That is a vice. That's a sin. We are to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be strengthened in the truth that is in Christ Jesus. In our understanding, we are to be mature. In malice, we are to be babes. But in understanding, we're to act like men. We're to be mature in understanding. So you've got to sink God's word down into your heart so that you don't sin against the Lord. I, I know in my life I have avoided lots of sin in this world simply because the word of God speaks to my heart. It convicts the heart. It drives the heart. And as it does, you avoid certain things. It makes you wise and you start seeing things. That is not a good place to go right there. You start walking in wisdom more and more because the Word of God is instructing you. The Holy Spirit is sinking it down within and it's becoming the way that you think. It's the process of your life is that you think God's thoughts after Him. You're funneling all things through the funnel of God's Word. Is it right? Is it true? Is it good? Is it praiseworthy? Is it trustworthy? Is it, is it honorable? Is it praiseworthy to God? What you're asking Meditate on these things, the Apostle Paul says. If you sin, beloved, when you sin, don't put on the fig leaves. Go to the Lord. It's a simple thing even in our world. Here is a crass analogy. You have credit card debt. What do they tell you to do? To run to your creditor. You go to them. Work out a payment plan. Do something. Don't run away from them. Makes the matters worse. We run to the Lord. We come to Him. We are those forgiven. He forgives His people, His children. And He loves and delights to hear our prayers. And so John says, if anyone sins, if anyone, it's, it's, it's a third class conditional. It's, it's probable this is what's going to happen is what it means. This is going to happen in your life. We are going to sin. You know, the simple thing, somebody comes in, some lady comes in wearing a certain dress and one of the other ladies looked at what she's wearing that for. Who does she think she is? Why is she in, why is there, you know, back and forth, all the little things with the tongue. You may not have said it to her, but you thought it. And it was sin before the Lord. Who knows your thoughts? You and the Lord. Don't we need our thoughts cleansed? Lord, cleanse my thoughts. Cleanse the way I think. There's enough junk still within my soul. Cleanse it. Weed it out. Flush it away. This is what we need as the people of God. Let's be real about it. A lot of phoniness that goes on today. Let's be real. Do we have sin? Yes, we do. Have we done this? Yes, we have. Lord, forgive use an example this morning with the elders. But oftentimes we say things. And I'll use myself as an example with my wife. I've said some things to my wife that were less than kind. And I asked her for, for forgiveness. I didn't say, 
I didn't mean it. I said, I meant every word. And it was wrong. It was sinful. Please forgive me. You see, you can work with somebody like that. You can't work with the one who's constantly saying, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. So they're excusing themselves. They're not owning it. They're not confessing their sin. They're not dealing with their sin. There's no release. There's no working then on the things that I You know what? This is wrong to say. Sinful. Forgive me. Lord, help me. Help me restrain the tongue. My problem is not really my tongue. My problem is my heart. Do the work in my heart. Help my thought life. So John says, if we sin, we have an advocate. Notice, we have an advocate. Paracleto. Paracletos. The one who comes alongside of us. It's thought of in this way as a defense attorney. You have the Father as the judge, and you have Satan as the accuser of the brethren, and you have the Lord Jesus as the advocate. And the advocate doesn't say, my people are innocent. No, he bears the burden of our guilt, doesn't he? He doesn't go before the Father and say, they are sinless, they have not sinned, they are innocent. No, he says they are guilty and I will bear their burden. I will take it upon myself. This is our advocate. This is the one who stands before the Father now and pleads his case, not our case. I don't have a case. I've sinned. I've broken all the commandments of God. I'm worthy and deserving of damnation. He pleads his cause, his case. I died for those sins. I lived in his place and I died in his place that he might then be acceptable in your sight, favorable, because he's covered and clothed in my righteous robes. What an advocate. I need that advocate. I need him every moment of every day. I need to be reminded of this advocate and what he has done for me. Otherwise, what happens, beloved, is we run from the Lord. We're afraid to come before the Lord. There is no fear in coming to the Lord as a believer. We come covered and clothed with the advocate, Jesus Christ, the only advocate. He is our advocate. He is the advocate with the Father, the defense attorney before the Father, Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. Are you trusting him? Parents, do you teach your children to trust Christ? Do you teach them not to be little Pharisees? But to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just simply doing right and doing wrong. But why we are to do right and wrong out of a thankful heart. Why we need Christ's atonement. Why we need His righteousness. Why doing the right things is not right before God unless we are covered in Jesus Christ. You need to teach your children the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't come. Kids come into this world and we teach them Christian doctrine. And you know what? They're little Pharisees. They don't know the gospel. This is right. This is wrong. And why does God love you? Because I do this. No. It's not why He loves you. He only loves us in Christ Jesus on account of the righteousness of Christ, the perfections of Christ, His life, His death. That is the only reason. We've got to teach our children their need for this advocate. You can't come before a holy God apart from the advocate, Jesus Christ. You must rely upon this advocate, Jesus Christ. 
Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Everything, beloved, apart from Christ is sinking sand. Your works, sinking sand if you're trusting in them. There's no hope in you. Christ is our hope. The hope, elpis in the scripture. It is the confident expectation that God will fulfill the covenant promises he has declared. He will bring it to pass. Christ is our hope. We have the advocate, Jesus. And John goes on and he says that he is, he himself is the propitiation. The hilasterion. He is the one who provides for an atonement. You've got two men that come into the temple. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Pharisee looks good. He's got his Sunday best on. And because he does, he marches right on up to the front. And he stands so others can see. And he lifts his eyes towards heaven. And he says, I thank thee, Father, that I'm not like other men. That I fast. I tithe. I do. I'm not like especially this tax collector over there. The tax collector... Standing afar off, beat upon his breast. That's a demonstration of humility. He knew that there was no reason for him to be in the presence of God except one, and he says, God, be merciful to me. Same word, hilasterion. Be propitious towards me. Provide for me a propitiation that I can come into your presence. Atone for me. That's what he's saying. He beat upon his breast continually. Be merciful to me, the sinner. He uses the definite article, the sinner. He viewed himself as the chief of all sinners. The one who has broken all of God's commandment. I ought to be cast out. But God provide for me. Even me. In atonement. The blood sacrifice. So that I can become one who walks in front of a holy God. Without fear of damnation. Provide for me. God must provide the propitiation. And beloved he has. He has in his son. Throw off your fig leaves. Look to Christ. Be covered. Be clothed. In the only one who can cover us. The only advocate. The only propitiation. The only atoning sacrifice. The only way to God. His name is Jesus. Run to Him. Stop looking to yourself. Stop doing your checks and balancing. Your accounting. I did this and I did that. You did nothing. The works that the Christian does... And they are legitimate works. They are received by the Father only on account of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Of themselves, they are defiled with sin and would be cast out of God's sight if by themselves. God accepts us because of the Son, the propitiation. You know it. 
You know the one who came to die, born to die. This was the one who came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father that He would be the propitiation. That He would be cast out. That we would not be cast out. I think we miss that oftentimes. We have a benediction at the end of the worship. And that benediction, benedictus, the Latin term, is God pronouncing a blessing upon His people with His Word. Why do we receive the blessing? Because Christ took our curse. We had all broken the covenant of works. We are all under the wrath and the curse of God. Christ bore that curse in His own person so that we would never have to bear that curse. Do you realize that He was cast out, that we would never be cast out? Christ, the only propitiation for our sins. And He says, and not for ours only. John is speaking to specifically a Jewish audience. And he is just simply saying that in a general sense that there is only one propitiation and there are Gentiles that will be saved as well. He is not saying that Christ died for every single person in the world. He is simply saying there is no other propitiation in the whole of the world except Christ. If you are going to come, Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. You must come by way of Jesus. Is that what your Christmas celebration is all about? You know, the Christmas celebration is relatively new. You don't find that in the Scriptures. What you find is the early church, later on, you find a celebration of the birth of Christ. When you go back to the teaching of Scripture, look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with celebrating the birth of Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying it's relatively new. What you find in the early church is a celebration of the death and resurrection of Christ. That was every Lord's Day. That's why we gathered. Christ is risen from the grave. He is the blessed resurrection, the first fruit of our resurrection. And that's why they gathered on the first day of the week. Celebration of that. Now let's go back to his birth. Is that your Christmas celebration? That there would be one who would be the advocate to come and lay down his life to cover, to atone for us? That he might then plead his case before a heavenly father? That he has fulfilled the demands of the law for these people? I have bore the burden of the wrath of God against their sins. They are righteous in your sight, covered in me. That's the case that the defense attorney brings for his people. Not me, him. Not who I am, not what I have done, but who he is and what he has done. You teach that to your kids during this... Christmas season? Do you bring that to them? John says, how do you know if you're in Him? Keeping His commandments. This is not a perfection. It's a direction. It's a striving after. The unbeliever has no desire for the commandments of God. The believer, the commandments come alive we delight to do the will of God. We are those that say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. 
We are like the psalmist in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates. He rolls it around. He loves the law of God. It shows, it demonstrates, it reveals the character of God. And this is the God that he loves. Are you one, beloved, for whom Christ died? You're a member of the church. Maybe you've been a member for years. Is that what you're trusting? You're trusting you're a member of Hope Reformed Church to get into the kingdom of heaven? Is that what you're trusting? Is that the fig leaves that you're wearing? Maybe you're trusting in your baptism, catechism, the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're trusting in the offering plate, what you've given. Maybe some service in the life of the church. Maybe a Sunday school class that you teach. Maybe you're trusting in that. Is that what you're trusting? Because John is declaring the good news that Christ came to be our advocate. Christ came to be the propitiation for our sins. He came to make us favorable in the sight of God. There is hope in none other. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus. Beloved, proclaim that to yourself. Proclaim that to your children. Proclaim that to your family and your friends. The fig leaves must come off. We must be clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus if we're going to stand before a holy God. The advocate, the propitiation. Let that be your meditation during this Christmas season. Amen. Shall we pray?